0: Our text this morning is Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is completely without error. It is completely authoritative and it is completely sufficient for our faith and life. Acts chapter 15 beginning at verse 22 Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter The brothers both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are at, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden upon you than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, And from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these. You will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off. They went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they had read it. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas. Who were themselves prophets. Encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and our lives. Have you ever wondered what keeps things together? Perhaps there's some sort of a machine that you have seen and wondered how it operates and stays together. Or perhaps, especially at this time of year, as there is a multiplicity of church activities, perhaps you wonder what keeps the church together. What's the big deal with the church? Why do we have to gather so often? Why do we have to do so many things? Sometimes it can almost seem to be a burden. There's so many opportunities for fellowship and for worship. Well, as I thought about that question and this passage, I tried to think of a, a good way to picture how things come together and stay together. And I thought long and hard and came up with the very deep, and philosophical example that is enjoyed by many who are very close to me. I thought that keeping things together, a good analogy is to think about Legos. Now, you see, Legos by themselves, as I can testify to, are quite annoying. They are little pieces that are left in the rug and on the floor and that you step on in the middle of the night and cause you to have great pain in your feet. And sometimes if I had my preference, perhaps I would be like you with the activities at Christmas. I would prefer that Legos would be banished hither and anon from my home. But, alas, that is not to be. And so I thought about what the purpose of Legos are, and that is as I watch... My children work with them and build with them. And have you ever noticed that Legos, when they are put together, create things? They create things of substance. Perhaps the Millennium Falcon or uh, the Easter Bunny or a house or a farm. You never know. But they come together. And you notice that in order to put Legos together, you must have actual Legos. You can't have the kind of fake Legos because they won't interlock correctly. They have to fit together. They they interlock one after the other to build huge things. In a sense, this is humorous, but that's what the church is like, interlocking pieces as we come together to build something so much more magnificent than the individual pieces that we are. The church comes together and is bound by the gospel and bound by love to build the body of Christ. It's these connections that are important. It's these connections that we're going to look at here this morning as we see an opportunity for a connected church, a church that is bound together in love and in the gospel. And so I'd like us to see three things about these connections this morning. First, I'd like us to see how the church goes about building connections. How the church brings itself together and builds these ties that bind. And then secondly, I'd like us to see how the church goes about strengthening the connections that are already there. It's not simply enough to build connections. We must strengthen them and keep them strong. And then finally we must realize that having these connections is a great joy to us. And we'll see the church as it begins rejoicing in the connections that they have. So building connections, strengthening connections, and rejoicing in connections. Let's see what happens here as the council has finished and they begin to send word to the church. Notice how our passage begins this morning. In verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, remember our context. Paul and Barnabas and the church at Antioch were very concerned because some had come down from Jerusalem and told them that they had messed up the gospel, that the gospel was more than simply believing in Jesus, that the gospel involved keeping the law, and doing things and unless you were circumcised you could not be saved. And you remember how the church at Antioch took this they were concerned there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and those who had come down from Jerusalem. But they also knew they couldn't take matters into their own hands and so they gathered together and sent off Paul and Barnabas along with some others down to the council to get all of this straightened out. And so now, after a discussion, things have been straightened out, and Paul and Barnabas know everything is going to be okay because the gospel has been upheld. But the question then comes, now how will the church at Jerusalem deal with this issue? It's a sticky issue because, you see, they need unity. And there's at least some sense of embarrassment that might come over the church at Jerusalem. They need to somehow bring together the church and make sure that the solution doesn't do more damage than the problem. And so what they begin to do is to show how they are connected to the church at Antioch and the Gentile churches at large. They begin to build connections within the church. And I want you to know what they begin with. They begin with humility. They begin by showing humility in order to forge these relationships. See how their letter begins. It seemed good to all of them to send this letter. So all the elders, all the apostles, the whole church together said, this is a good letter to send. And it begins, the brothers, both of the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice that they do not begin here with a superior tone. Have you ever written to a company or an organization to try and get something rectified? Perhaps nowadays you don't take out pen and paper, you send an email, and you get a response back that is something like you think should have come down from Mount Sinai. Well, you know, if you had only bothered to read the fine print in our warranty, surely you would have known that This was not covered. However, we will be so gracious as to answer your difficulty just this once. And you think, what is with this? What do you think of yourself? Perhaps that's how the apostles and elders could have written. They could have written, The apostles who traveled for years with our Lord Jesus Christ and learned everything from his hand firsthand, not second hand like you, and who grew up in the temple worshiping the Lord God for generations to these mean Christians, lowly Gentiles of Antioch. A little bit of a different fail, huh? But instead, the Greek is actually very instructive. It says, the apostles and the elders, brothers. You see, they immediately begin with a tone of brotherly love. It's not superior at all. They're saying that there is equality of person. There is equality of church. There is equality amongst Jews and Gentiles. They're starting out on the right foot because they are choosing consciously not to think better of themselves. This is the advice Paul gives to us in Philippians, isn't it? They start with humility. That would be a good place for the church of Jesus Christ to start today. To start with humility. Not thinking more of ourselves than we ought. But they do more than simply show this humility through a brotherly tone. They do something that, quite frankly, is perhaps amongst the hardest things for Christians to do. They acknowledge the hurt that was done. Look with me at verse 24. They say, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you, With words, unsettling your minds. The word there is actually also souls. Unsettling your souls. Although we gave them no instructions. You see, they're acknowledging the difficulty that has come to the Gentile church at Antioch because of their own disciples. Now, they say we didn't give them those instructions, but they acknowledge that they came from us doesn't that go a long way toward building connections? You see it even in your families, don't you? When one child somehow hurts another child and you have to tease out a grudging apology, well, I guess I hurt you. I didn't mean to, but if you hadn't been in the way, then that's not what we do. We say, I'm sorry. It's my fault. And let me tell you what Christians do. They over-apologize. Please, please, don't ever go up to someone and say, I'm sorry if what I said was misinterpreted by you and you took offense. That's about the meanest way you can make an apology. I had an opportunity once, not so long ago, in which I was involved in a very delicate situation, and there was a communication that was taken wrong. And it wasn't even a communication that I had made, but I was a part of a group involved with this, and I had made similar communications in private. And I had two options before me, and the one option was to try and maneuver and manipulate and downplay. And the other option, which I was, quite frankly, afraid would make the situation worse, was simply to communicate back and say, I'm sorry, it's all my fault. I shouldn't have done what I did. We shouldn't have thought what we did. Can you please forgive us? You would not believe how God used a simple apology to crack the ice in a relationship, which was at the verge of almost violence become dear and close from that point. Because, you see, when you show humility, others show humility back. That's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And, you see, the apostles were not above that. And if they were not above that, then we should not be. And so what we need to remember is, fathers, there is nothing wrong with apologizing to your children. If you have sinned against them, you should apologize. It doesn't make you weak. It shows them what they need to do when they sin. And you can hold them accountable for that. Wives, you can apologize to your husbands or to your children. That is the way that relationships are forged and brought together. And this is what the church does. They are building connections. They acknowledge that they have caused difficulty. That the church at Antioch has been troubled, and this is a military metaphor. This is the word that you would use for plundering a town, for tearing down strongholds. They say, we know we've caused you great difficulty. Perhaps we have not discipled as well as we should have. Can you imagine how that would lift the hearts of those at Antioch? And how easy it would have been to fall into the trap of, well, you know, if you would just study your Bible more, you would know how important these things are to us, like circumcision and et cetera. But you see, they're building connections. They do it by showing humility, and they also do it by showing care. You see, they choose men to go out to Antioch, and they choose men carefully. They choose leading men Chief men, we might even say highly respected men, Silas and Judas. We don't know much of Judas because we don't see him more in the New Testament. But we do know what kind of a man Silas is. We do know what kind of a Christian Silas is. He's the type of Christian that can be beaten in jail and he sings hymns of praise to God. That's who Silas is. He can wander all over the known world following the Apostle Paul being stoned, being whipped, being beaten, all for the sake of the gospel. This is the gem of a man gripped by the Holy Spirit that the church at Jerusalem sends. They don't find people who aren't busy hanging around the corner. They take amongst their leading men to make sure that this connection is built together. And they do something else that is important for us as a church and as families. They show a united front. Do you notice how they say this? They say that the church came together, all of us. It seemed good to us having come to one accord, verse 25. That's that word that Luke loves, of one spirit. Unanimously, we've come together. Now, did you think about that? This church unanimously decided on this letter. Well, unless the party of the Pharisees were on vacation when the letter was written, we have to wonder why it was unanimous. There was some disagreement, some even sharp disagreement. And it's because there is a place for disagreements, but there is a place also for coming together to build relationships. Moms and dads everywhere know this, don't you? You have a difficult decision to make that involves the children. Where do you discuss it? Do you discuss it in front of the children? I've been reminded that sometimes the way we deal with decisions is not very politely. We don't always have calm, dispassionate discussion. Well, I think we should do this. No, dear. I think it would be much more logical to do this. Well, you have a good point. But have you considered this? No, sometimes these conversations amongst husbands and wives go something like this. Are you crazy? What in the world are you thinking? Right? Do we have those conversations in front of the children? No, we don't. We have those discussions and we come to resolution and then when we come out, what do we say? Your mother and I have decided. And if the kids ask, well, who won? You say, We both won. Your mother and I have decided. And this is the way it will be. And we are united in this. And don't try and pull one of us aside and get a different opinion. That's the way your church should operate. If you ask me why we do something, the answer is the session has decided. Not, well, the session decided, but I really wish they would have listened to me. This is the way that we operate. We bring a unanimous front to encourage people. And this is the way that we build connections. But having built these connections up, connections do not stay together unless we keep them strong. You know, I was discussing home repair this past week with someone. You know how well I am with tools and home repair. And we have this door that comes off the hinge because there's a a screw that is in and it becomes loose. And the way I fix the door is I yell, Deb, the door's broke. And Deb comes over and she fixes the door. That's how handy I am. And so I was advised that one of the things that you can do in order to keep this screw from vibrating and from coming out is you could put a little bit of stay-tight glue or Something I don't know. I don't I'm not even sure where you'd buy it But i'm sure you can buy it somewhere and you put it on the screw and that keeps it stuck It's told that this is often used in automobiles Because with all the vibration you see sometimes it's not enough to just build connections We have to have the glue that keeps us together That's true of the church as well and the glue that keeps us together Are the proper use of authority and the proper self-sacrifice knowing our places, and using them as a blessing to others. Notice what the church does here. As the church at Jerusalem sends word to Antioch, they don't say, well, you know, your opinion is really as good as ours, and we didn't really want to give it much thought, so uh, do whatever you want. How encouraging is that? Instead, they say, we are the church at Jerusalem. We are the apostles and the elders, and we have come together, and we have decided. And the word that's used there for decided is a very firm word. You see, in the Bible version that we have in front of us, it says, it seemed good several times. But that Greek word for it seemed good is the same word that we get dogma from. You see, it seemed good But we also have decided, and there is an authoritative decision behind it. It's not, it seemed good, take it or leave it. It seemed good to us, therefore we're writing you this letter. Because we don't want any dissension in your midst either. But the proper use of authority in the church does not begin with us. It begins with the Holy Spirit, exactly where they describe it. Do you notice what they say here? It seemed good to us, verse 28. But it also seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You see, the proper use of authority is Spirit-led authority. That means that we lead in our churches by the Spirit. We look into the Scriptures. We look back as Peter did and as Paul did, and we look back at the mighty acts of the Spirit And we see how God has worked. We do as James did. We open up our Bibles and we say, it seems good to me and the prophets agree. And that's the way we lead in our homes too, isn't it? You know, there's only so long that you can say, because I said so. Because the why birds begin to come out. It's about what? Three or four years old, maybe. Clean up your room. Why? Why? Because I said so. Why? Because I'm your father. Why? Because I was the guy to go down to the hospital with you. And by the way, your mother, she gave birth. Do you want to disappoint your mother? You see, you can do that sometimes, but you need to also lead by the Spirit. Now, that does not mean that you need to give intricate details of every decision. But the answer should be something like, clean up your room. Why? Because I'm asking you to, and I want you to show love and honor to me, as the Bible says, and because it's the best way that we will be orderly in our lives, and it will show that you appreciate your mother and all that she does for you all the time. Is it so hard to clean up your room for all she does for you? You see, that puts a different cast on it. It's essentially the same statement, but it's using the scriptures and the principles of the scriptures. And that's the proper use of authority. That's what the church does. But you see, in order to do that, you must go into a dangerous place. You must be willing to have the Spirit lead in your life. You must be willing to have the Spirit correct you in your decisions, in your priorities. And you see, the church at Jerusalem was. It would have been easier for them, far easier to say, we're the church at Jerusalem, we've always had circumcision, you'll have circumcision. Why? Because we said so. And that's the way we've always done it. But instead, they were open to the Spirit's leading. And that caused them to change their position, but they didn't lose any authority. They didn't look into the Bible and say, well, we were wrong, so I guess you could do whatever you want. They said, we may not have understood this properly. Let's search the Scriptures together and obey them. You see the difference? It's a proper use of authority that leads to strengthening connections. There's also a clear leadership that happens. You see, they say, it seemed good to us. We decided this is better than James's. Well, I judge it to be the case. They make a decision and they are clear about it. They send a letter and then they send two prophets along with the letter to explain the letter. They want to be as clear as possible in their instructions. And that's hard to do, isn't it? Especially when we want things done and we want things done in our way. This is perhaps the Achilles heel of most children. They ask for something or they want something. And somehow, children seem to think that asking vaguely and in hushed tones makes it more likely to get the answer yes. That's not the case, kids. You see, you need to be clear about what's being done. You need to be clear about what you want. And then, parents, you need to be clear about where you are going. Don't give vague instructions. It's like the way that we pray. We pray for particular things particularly. We think about them. This is the way that the church at Jerusalem leads. They want to confirm what's being said, not hide behind it. And the church responds at Antioch with a proper mode of self-sacrifice. You see, the proper response to correct authority is correct submission. The church at Jerusalem sends over these four requirements. And the word here for requirements is a very interesting word. It's the only time it's used as a noun here in the Bible. It's usually an adverb talking about necessary actions or necessary modes of operation. But here the adverb is turned into a noun to say the things that are necessary. We might ask ourselves, well, why are they necessary? You said circumcision wasn't necessary. How important is it to keep from things that are strangled? For many of us, that would mean no turkey dinner or no chicken in every pot. What is the church going on here and saying and doing? Does it mean that we shouldn't be eating rare steaks because we don't want things with blood? What's with this mix of what it seems to be some things that are ceremonial, like eating things with blood, and then other things that seem to be moral or very important, like sexual immorality? How are these things mixed together? And I think what's being said here is that these things are necessary because of the present emergency that the church finds itself in. You see, they're saying to the church at Antioch, You understand the principles, but you need to know, remember verse 21, that Moses is read in every synagogue, every Sabbath. And it's going to be very hard for your Jewish Christian brothers to give up what they have lived for for decades. You don't want to quit this cold turkey. You want to ease out of habits. And so why this is necessary, it's necessary for your brothers. It's necessary so you can have table fellowship with them, so you can have connections with them, so you can be built together as one church. Not two, not a Jewish church and a Gentile church, but one church together. That's why it is necessary. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to give up things that are permissible for others? Are you willing to sacrifice that others might be strengthened in their relationship with you? Because, you see, that's how the church is built. It's not built on pride. It's not built on rights. It's built on self-sacrifice. Because the church is founded on the cornerstone of the cross, which is the ultimate sign of self-sacrifice. Not a one of us deserve anything but hell and misery. But Jesus Christ, who deserved everything, sacrificed everything, became a man, lived a perfect life among sinners, and died on a cross that we might be made one with him. Do you know that truth? If you don't, then I pray that you would read the scriptures. I pray that you would ask me. I pray that you would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate self-sacrifice. That you might be freed from sin and death and misery. This is the way the church is strengthened in the midst of its difficulty. The church is built up through connections. It is strengthened through connections. But the church also rejoices in the connections that God has given to it. Now, I mentioned earlier that the apostles could have taken a very haughty tone in their letter. Some of us are familiar with that. But there's the flip side too, isn't there? The letter could have come, and the response could have been something like this, which I'm sure you've never heard. See, I told you so. I told you we were right. I told you we understood the gospel. I told you you shouldn't have come over. I don't know why you did. If you would have only listened to me, we wouldn't have had all of these troubles. You ever experienced that? Perhaps you've done that. It's a great temptation. That is, to me, a far greater temptation than gambling or theft or many other gross sins. Just to get that last little bit in there. And sometimes it doesn't even take, I told you so. Sometimes it's like this. Mm -hmm. It's that temptation to have the last word. To show that you were right. Right. But you see, that doesn't build the connections and the relationships. That just lifts up the person making the comment. And love doesn't puff up. Love doesn't lift up self. It sacrifices for others. It rejoices in unity. And that's the response here of the church at Antioch. Now, notice the letter comes and they respond by receiving this love publicly. The decision is not brought forth in secret. There's not a, a secret group that gets a copy of the letter and other people get it by hearsay. There's no email chain that needs to go out. All of the church is gathered together publicly to hear what the church at Jerusalem is saying to the church at Antioch. And it's partly because... They want to have this resolved, but it's partly also because they want to show the love that exists between these two churches. It's the reason why it's an excellent habit, gentlemen, some mornings, maybe every morning, to kiss your wife before you go to church in front of your children. They may laugh and snicker at you and tell you to get a room and tell, you know, maybe do the KISS song and all this. But to show your children that you love your wife. Or maybe you would show by doing the dishes. Wives, it's a wonderful habit to show your children that you love and honor and respect your husband in front of them. Not just when they're in bed. Children, one of the best things you can do for your younger siblings is to obey your parents in front of them. To show them what it's like to be a godly person under authority. And you see, that's what they do here. They rejoice in the connection. They bring out the whole, the word here for the congregation is actually the word for a mob or a crowd. It's not representatives. It's everybody. You can imagine. They're running through the streets. They're going to read the letter. Come on. You can't be late. Put your soup down. Come on. I don't care what coat you wear. Come on. They're going to read the letter. They gather up all together. And they stand and they read the letter. And the response to this love, this loving authority, is willing submission. How easy would it have been for the church at Antioch to say, why should we keep from things that are strangled? How is that different than circumcision? Explain that to me. Judas, come on. Show me in the Bible where it says I have to do that and not be circumcised. Come on. I need to know now. And they could have started murmuring and, and discussing, and debating. But instead, they are so grateful that the main important, critical point that the gospel has been upheld, they say, Amen! We will do it. We will care for our brothers. You see, because they are not just concerned about being right, they are concerned about the unity. They want to be united with the church at Jerusalem. And so they are so encouraged, the Bible tells us, that when Judas and Silas finally leave, they give them peace. Peace be with you, they say. And one commentator puts it so wonderfully. He says that Judas and Silas left with the sounds, peace be with you, ringing in their ears. What a better, what better description of unity could we find? You see, they desired to be one with the church. But another way in which they rejoice is they rejoice by receiving the word. You'll notice the letter comes, but Judas and Silas speak, and the Bible says, for a long time. I don't know how long that sermon was, but it was probably longer than this one. They spoke with many words, and the people sat and they listened. And then they said, please stay with us for some time that we might learn from you. Because, you see, they wanted to learn from the Word of God because the connection that kept them together was the Word of God. A love of the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches. That is the connection. It's not hobbies. It's not where they lived. It's not even outlook on life in general and government. It's the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And we see that because even as Judas and Silas leave, look here at the end how our passage ends. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word. That is the connection that keeps the church together, the word as it is preached. You see, because in conclusion, what keeps us together as a church is not the idea of the gospel. It is not merely the doctrine that says that we are justified by faith alone. It is a necessary doctrine. It is a beautiful doctrine. It is a doctrine we should treasure. But that alone, barely, is not what keeps us together. It's not the idea of the gospel, but it is the obedience to the gospel and the outworking of the gospel in our lives as it changes us. That is what keeps us together as the gospel creates love in us and peace in us and harmony with God and harmony with each other, it is the fruit of the gospel that keeps the church together. You can't have any of those things without the great truth of the gospel. But that truth is not just a fact to be recited on a test. It is a principle It is a biblical command to be lived out, to change our lives, and to bind us together forever. You see, because, Christian, if you profess that your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must look around you, because you'll be spending eternity with the people around you, bound together by the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray.